Hi, and welcome to Talk of the Town After Hours. I'm Grace Fairchild for WVBR News. This episode brings you an interview from our January 29th live show on 93.5, our first show back for the spring 2022 semester. The station dealt with a couple of power outages during the broadcast, so if you missed any of this show, you have the chance to get completely caught up in this episode. On January 11th, a lawsuit was filed in federal court in Illinois against 16 major U.S. universities, including Cornell, for price-fixing student aid packages. The lawsuit claims that these universities unlawfully collaborate on student aid calculations and fail to truly apply need-blind admissions policies. This claim centers on the 1994 federal law that allows universities to collaborate on aid calculations using a consensus approach, so long as they agree to implement need-blind admissions. To gain a better understanding of the history of financial aid price-fixing, its impact on students, and Cornell's place in the case, Jackie Torres and I interviewed Cornell Law and economics professor George Hay, an expert in antitrust law and economics. Professor Hay, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So first, let's talk about precedent and the history that follows this case. What is the history of collaboration on financial aid award calculations within the Ivy League? And is there any antitrust history here? Yes, the history is very important. It all started back in 1958 when the Ivy League schools with one or two others formed what's called Ivy League overlap. And the idea was that they would get together and if they could identify a student who was admitted by two or more Ivy League schools, they would compare notes on how much financial aid they thought that student should receive. Uh, but they went further than that, and they basically agreed uh, that they would not compete on financial aid, that the student would get the same financial aid package from any school that he or she was admitted to. This went on more or less in secret for some time. Uh, it was, I think, Certainly some people in the admissions office knew about it, but it was not widely known. It was picked up by an article in the Wall Street Journal. uh, And shortly after that, the Department of Justice took notice and filed a lawsuit against all the Ivy League schools plus MIT, who was also a participant. Uh, The universities all but MIT settled and agreed to stop doing it. Uh, MIT went to trial, but ultimately at the end of the day, MIT also agreed that they would no longer agree to fix financial aid packages. Congress stepped in uh, and was persuaded that some collaboration among the schools was uh, helpful. These financial aid forms are very complicated and there were mistakes made and uh, how do you interpret it if if their parents are divorced or remarried and so forth. And so the federal legislation, fairly complicated, but said, we're gonna allow you to continue to collaborate to some extent on deciding how much financial aid a student should get. We're going to allow you to collaborate on exchanging information, uh, make sure a student isn't somehow cheating by giving incorrect information, to agree on how to interpret information, you know, what do you do when the parents are, are divorced and remarried. What you can't do is actually agree on the financial aid package. So we draw the line at that. But there's also a catch. If you want to avail yourself of this exception, if you like this immunity or exemption from the antitrust laws, you can only do that if you pledge uh, to engage in need-blind admissions, which means when you admit someone, you admit them without regard to their ability to pay. 
as long as you continue to do that, then we'll allow you to continue to engage in some of the activities that you engaged in under Ivy League overlap. Now that then, and that exemption was renewed once by Congress, so it was still in effect. And a number of schools, not just the Ivy League schools, but quite a number of other schools, like Northwestern, for example, and Caltech, participated in these, this group arrangement and shared information, uh, shared formulas, tried to stay clear of actually fixing the financial aid package for any student, but basically did a lot of collaboration. What the latest lawsuit picks up, and it's a class action lawsuit, which means it's not brought by the Department of Justice, it's brought by a bunch of lawyers technically acting on behalf of all students who are affected, but it really is a, is a product of lawyers. The lawyers said, we think there's something going on here. Uh, we think it's wrong. Uh, we think we can uh, uh, get the schools to pay up some money to the students who are affected and to stop doing certain things. Okay. Why did they think that they had a lawsuit? And the answer is all based on this need blind admissions. They said, wait a minute, we know from a variety of sources, we have, we've talked to some people in the financial aid office, that it's not really always need blind admissions. And the cl two classic examples, one is, well, for example, let's suppose we have a legacy, uh, someone who would be a fifth generation Cornelian uh, and whose family is very wealthy. We know that and the student is a okay student, but not maybe not quite as good as some of the other students. But we know that admitting the student puts us in a good position to receive a generous bequest from the family. So it's not just about tuition, right? whether the student can pay tuition. It's about whether or not admitting the student will enable us to uh, basically collect a large sum of money. Right? Now, I think the universities would say, that's consistent with need blind admission. We admit students for a lot of reasons. We admit someone with not so great grades because they're a good football player, a good hockey player, uh, or because they're a talented musician, or because they add to ethnic diversity or geographic diversity. So we take lots of things into account. And one of the things we take into account is whether or not this person comes from a family who we think over the long run can be very generous. So they will deny that, uh, no, I don't think any of them will deny uh, that they uh, don't take legacies into effect and don't take into account, don't take into effect the possibility of a big donation. And they will say that's perfectly consistent with need blind admissions. It's not, not about whether the student can pay tuition or not. It's about something else. The other thing that they picked up had to do with wait lists. And the federal legislation specifically said that this cooperation or this, this pledge to engage in need blind admissions should apply not only to admission original admissions decisions, it should apply to admissions off the wait list. And upon talking to a number of insiders, the lawyers worked out that a number of schools seem to work the wait list. That is to say, going down the wait list, now all of these people are more or less qualified, but the question is which of these people should get in who will not require much financial aid. And what the lawsuit says is this, again, is flatly inconsistent with need blind admissions. You pledged not to do this, and you're doing it. Uh, and I think while all we have is their complaint, the evidence seems pretty strong that some schools do work the wait list. Now, whether or not that's determined that's in violation of the agreement, 
is a separate question. Okay. Now, what does this all mean? All that it means is, if this is proven that they that they don't engage in need blind emissions, is that the underlying exemption that Congress provided is removed. That is to say, they no longer can hide behind the statute that says as long as you engage in need blind emissions, you can you can do certain things that you otherwise might not be allowed to do. It still doesn't mean that what they're doing with respect to collaborating is necessarily illegal. As far as we know, they are not doing what they did before, which is actually fixing the financial aid package. They are collaborating on gathering and interpreting information. Now, the class action would say they're going far enough that it results effectively in fixing the financial aid package for some students. But the schools will fight that. Now, one other small small twist is so important, like Cornell. The plan identifies 16 schools, which are party to this uh, arrangement. It does not say that all of the schools are failing to abide by need-blind emissions. It, for example, does not include Cornell in that list. It doesn't mean they think Cornell is necessarily not playing by the rules, but they don't have evidence on Cornell. Nevertheless, Cornell was still agreeing to exchange this information. And since some of the other schools were not playing by the rules, were not engaging in need-blind emissions, the whole agreement loses its immunity. And Cornell is in just as much trouble as the other schools. I think that's going to be debated. Uh, If Cornell can establish that it is abiding by the rules, that is to say, it is committed to need-blind emissions, I think they will say, how are we to know that some of the other schools we're in partnership with were not playing by the rules? We're exchanging information with them. We assume they're operating in good faith. We can't be held responsible for that. Again, this will be contested, uh, but a few schools, including Cornell, have that as their defense. They are not identified as having failed to abide and engage in need-blind admissions. Um, I guess in the same vein, you've already kind of established that under federal law, schools are allowed to collaborate and work together um, to create financial aid award uh, formulas, like through what's been called the consensus approach. Um, But this suit also alleges price fixing. So how do you think that, um, you know, collaborating on these formulas and price fixing, like in a general sense, uh, might be like different under the law? Classic price fixing. So if, for example, the ADI of these schools got together in a hotel room and said, let's agree the tuition will be $70,000. That is flatly illegal. And you can't defend yourself by saying we're a university, we're a nonprofit. Uh, it's flatly illegal. What the university will say is, we haven't done that. We haven't agreed on tuition. Of course, they haven't done that. And we haven't agreed on how much financial aid to give to any student. Now, what the, what the lawsuit will say is, the practical effect of agreeing on the formulas and on the data you use, that has the practical effect of, of limiting how much financial aid a given student will get. Now, that's going to be debated. Uh, but what they're doing is not obviously illegal. Right? Uh, it's going to have to be proven that what they're doing is close enough to fixing prices that it belongs, it deserves to be prohibited under the Sherman Act. Okay. 
So I also think that this uh, brings us to the student perspective. So a lot of the the policy reasoning behind having antitrust laws is a lot about how it impacts consumers and students are the consumers here. So how do you see this impacting the admissions as a marketplace? How do you see these uh, price fixing calculations impacting students? Here's what the schools will say. And I think there's some merit to it, but whether it legally holds up, uh, you can't be sure. They will say, the whole purpose of financial aid is to allow lower-income students to attend a college. But what happens, and I'll, I'll drag in the U.S. News rankings into this a bit. What happens now is we're under great pressure to raise our U.S. News rankings. And the way we do that is to attract students with very high uh, uh, SAT scores or very high GPAs. And then we identify those students who we chase after them with money even students who don't need the money. And so there's an arms race of what's called merit scholarships, right? which given financial aid budgets are limited, it means if we spend all of our money on smart rich kids, we don't have money left over to allow the needy to go to school. That was the whole point. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, allowing us to collaborate to some extent so we don't engage in an arms race with respect to wealthy but talented students allows us to use a financial aid budget in a in a, a way which is in the public interest, I'll put it that way. And you know, I think they genuinely believe that, that. But they also realize that once one school starts offering merit scholarships, then there's a lot of pressure on the rest to follow. The same thing would be true if the Ivy League started offering athletic scholarships. You know, uh, seven of the eight might say, we'd rather not do that. But if Princeton starts offering athletic scholarships, given that we play Princeton, uh, we can't sit on the sidelines and not do that. So they would say there had to be some form of cooperation to prevent this arms race. I will observe, for example, that uh, in in many universities, this arms race is uh, is going on. It really is an arms race. Yeah. A lot of money is being spent uh, going after people who really don't need it. And that's great for those students. It's not great for the students who otherwise would have gotten a more generous package. So it's a, it, as far as consumers, it's a mixed bag. Some students are getting more than they otherwise would uh, because they don't really need the money, but they're getting it anyway. And some students are getting less than they would because the money is being used to chase after other students. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting you mentioned that just because, I mean, I remember like looking back to when I applied to college and I think like good point that a lot of like schools, they they did say that they didn't offer merit scholarships and said that they would supplement with like financial aid and grants. Um, so that's really interesting. I do I do think that out of curiosity that there's like an idea of like a race to the bottom. Do you think that that kind of exists here um, in the case of you know schools competing against each other for student talent? Well, again, it depends on your perspective. Race to the bottom. There clearly is an arms race. If you look at the graduate level, right? yeah. law students, business students, graduate students, there clearly is an arms race. Uh, in law school, we don't, we don't have uh, admit without regard to financial uh, ability to pay. That is, we, we, go, we do provide merit scholarships, and we use those merit scholarships to chase after students with very high LSAT scores and very high GPAs. It's in, unquestionably driven in part by trying to get our, our rankings up. 
And so we've seen we've seen it happening. We see that how much of our financial aid budget is spent on what I call merit scholarships. So it will make a difference. Now, as to whether that difference is a good thing or a bad thing, it really depends upon your perspective. Uh, it would be nice if we could avoid this arms race, for example, by not not cooperating with U.S. News. But they really can't do that either. I mean, they, they can't they can't get together in a hotel room and say, "Let's agree that none of us." will cooperate with U.S. News, that's probably unlawful as well. So uh, there is a problem. Uh, it's not clear what the solution is. So I think it's really interesting as well that, as you mentioned earlier, this is a class action suit. It's filed privately, and it is not from any enforcement agencies like DOJ or the FTC. Do you think that that lessens its impact um, or changes how scared these universities might be. I mean, these universities have this kind of leverage because they have the names and they have a lot of market power. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a lot to go after them with a suit like this. Do you think it, it's, it hits home less because it's not from an enforcement agency? It kind of depends on the merits. That is, if you're dealing with a government agency uh, and you believe they're acting in the public interest, you sit down and say, look, we want to explain to you why this really is not illegal at all, uh, or why we can agree with you. We can make some changes and we'll negotiate some changes because it's in our interest to cooperate. Right? Difference in class action, the class action, the lawyers are, at the end of the day, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, they're after money. They're after a big settlement, which they'll get part of. Yes, to some extent, they're, they're trying to change the system as well. but. They want money as well. And what that means is they're not going to walk away. Uh, we can't, uh, the universities can't sit down with the plaintiffs and say, look, please listen to us. We're really good people. We, we want to explain to you why this. No, the, the class action is going to say, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to settle this case, you've got to pony up some significant amount of money, which means it's not going to go away easily. Now, many cases don't go to trial. Okay. Uh, parties settle. Uh, close to trial. Uh, and so this case may well settle, but it's not going to settle early, uh, not with 16 different defendants and a, and a class action as plaintiffs. And it's not going to settle cheaply, I don't think. Uh, it'll, it'll settle when there are preliminary decisions by a court which says either, uh, so far we think the defendants have the better argument or the plaintiffs have the better argument. But this case is unlike a case with the government, where if you think you have a good argument to make and you think you're willing to cooperate on reasonable terms, you can make it go away very quickly. I think it's unlikely this case is going to go away very quickly. Fascinating. Do you see the government enforcement agencies getting involved at all, or um, do you think that that's not really a priority? I know they have a lot on their plate with uh, big tech and a lot of other antitrust lawsuits uh, in progress, but do you think that this would ever become a an area of concern for them? They could if they wanted to. I mean, normally, the piggyback goes the other way. Private parties learn about a government suit, and all the government case can do would be to say, stop it, uh, or in some cases, maybe fine people to put them in jail, but it doesn't, it doesn't get any money. And so the private parties follow after, and they say, okay, now, in addition to your stopping it, we want to compensate the people who are harmed. It's more rare that the parties go first, the private parties go first, and then the government comes in. And it's really not necessary. The government will say, we don't really need to win. I mean, the, the private party, we're not going to throw anyone in jail. Right? This is not criminal behavior. 
And so let this case run its natural course. Huh? At the end of the day, if the class action is right, then the colleges will be forced to change their way of, of doing things. And people who are injured will be compensated. We really don't need to get involved, especially, as you just said, Grace, we have so many other things on our plate. I mean, we're, we're drowning in big tech antitrust matters. Uh, and so I don't think you're going to see any, any rush uh, to get a private action, uh, to, sorry, to get a government action. Uh, this, the case is in good hands. They've got good lawyers uh, working on it who have an incentive to carry it through, you know, at least to a settlement. Uh, and until that happens, there's really no reason for the government to be involved. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Brett. Before we close out, I have just a couple of other notes on this that I think contextualize the suit. As Professor Hay referenced, universities put a lot of stake in the U.S. News & World Report university rankings that are updated each year. These rankings incentivize universities to maintain extremely low acceptance rates. Universities are rewarded for being exclusionary. In this way, prestige is associated not so much with the quality of education as much as it is about how many people are kept out. If these are the larger incentives at play, it's not hard to understand why these universities would choose to admit small classes of students who can pay full tuition. Like its peers, Cornell participates in this rankings competition. It's forced to in order to remain regarded as a premier university. I don't begrudge Cornell for that, and like Professor Hay said, it might also be legally murky for universities to collude against the U.S. News & World Report rankings. But as a community, what I hope we remember is that Cornell, in its founding, was meant to provide stellar education for all, but particularly for members of the working class. The Morrill Act of 1862, legislation that financed Cornell through land grants, was meant to educate working class people in agriculture and industrial engineering. Today, the Cornell community is adequately aware of how structural factors can influence economic inequality and opportunity particularly when it comes to education. So when we put forth a motto like, any person, any study, I think the Cornell community has an even greater responsibility to focus on truly need-blind admissions that give all students equal opportunities, regardless of ability to pay. And if it takes a class action lawsuit to bring it up, I guess I'm just glad we're having that conversation now. Thanks so much for listening to After Hours, and thanks to Professor George Hay for sharing this expertise, and Jackie Torres for contributing to this interview. Talk of the Town After Hours is a production of WVBR News, and for more stories you if it can't get anywhere else, you can listen to our live shows on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on 93.5 FM or streamed on WVBR.com. Follow us on social media as well. We're at WVBR FM News on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For WVBR News, I'm Grace Fairchild.